Hey everybody, uh, we're here with Desmond Delt today, an assistant professor at Langston University in Oklahoma. Uh, we're going to be discussing a chapter he wrote uh, titled Voices of Experienced Physical Educators of English Language Learners. And throughout this podcast, we'll be using English Language Learners and ELL uh, synonymously, so you'll kind of understand what that is. Um, this chapter is forthcoming in a new book titled Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning in Higher Education. Uh, this is going to come out in 2020 um, and is published by IGI Global Publishing. So, uh, Desmond, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your article. I appreciate you having me. Um, I, I really like the way you um, using this innovative way to share, you know, research through this medium. So, uh, thanks. And this particular chapter is kind of like derived from my dissertation work. So, I'm happy to share this with the listeners. Awesome. Uh, so, I was once considered and labeled an ESL student. English as a second language, uh, back when we were called that. Um, so this uh, chapter really resonated with me, um, and I'm excited to get into it. So let's start from the very, very beginning. Um, in the start, you mention uh, this author, Barbara Glaskus, um, that they published a paper in 1993, which urged PE teachers to implement effective classroom practices into their teaching for ELLs. Um, now, do you think her call to action was taken seriously, or uh, have we made uh, a lot of progress in the last kind of 30 years since this paper was published? So we say, if we say taken seriously, if it's being based off a uh, plethora of research in this area, then no. Uh, however, uh, more common work from scholars such as Dr. Um, Sato, Hodge, and Burden, so they're providing a guide into addressing the, this area of research. But if we base the seriousness in terms of program development and district support, if you think about um, K-12 settings, then it all kind of depends. Um, and also not only in K-12 settings, but also in um, peak class, physical education, teacher education. So we know that um, classrooms are becoming more diverse in terms of first languages spoken uh, by students. Some schools are equipped with their own uh, ELL specialists, while some specialists are assigned to like a single district covering several schools. Some teachers receive professional development in teaching ELLs, while others are just expected to be expert teachers, regardless of their students and whatever formal training they had. So, um, and so we also got to look at the, the PEAT programs as well. Have we enhanced our plans of studies to emphasize teaching ELLs? Um, if not, I believe that this population of students has to be included, you know, when we discuss teaching diverse uh, diverse learners. So I can't say affirmatively no, and I can't say affirmatively, affirmatively yes, but I think they're making, there's making leeway, but I don't think it's a, a uh, big leap. And not in physical education, teacher education. Um, I, I know I can, when we speak about like English education, of course this is a, a, a topic that is always considered, but I think right with physical education, um, there's so many aspects in which students deal with, you know, uh, physical education teachers are expected just to be adaptive, adaptable, yeah. you know, regardless of what background they have had, they're just expected to be able to teach without, you know, uh, the technical support. Right. And, and I remember in California, we, you had to have an ELL course, like a, a class to help you teach ELLs better. But a lot of right. that was also situated in classroom learning. So our students that would go out to take that class would come back and go, they're giving me tutorials on how to help in when we're sitting inside of a classroom at a desk and how to use these things. So I think, 
you know, in the physical education context, there's that added layer uh, as well of not necessarily having the same tools, even though you might be trained in your teacher education for it. So, but but I also think that is good as well because a lot of students uh, or um, teacher education students or PE students don't even have that aspect of the curriculum. There may be a class where it discuss, you know, diverse learners, right. where there may be a chapter on, you know, uh, English language learners. But, not, you know, if, if you even have that class, although, you know, you're sitting down uh, with other teacher education majors, I think that exposure is also good, which, which you know, people in my study, they very few of them had, you know, that, that level of formal training as well. Right. And this That's might be a good. trip for the person who's in a peak class and they're listening right. to your chapter through a podcast mm-hmm. while they're doing this. So, but right. I digress. Cool. So let me ask you this next question. Um, can you kind of walk through your decision of why you chose to use the theory of planned behavior uh, to explain the results for this? Okay. So the theory of planned behavior, I use that because my overall goal was to examine the teaching practices and what motivated physical educators um, of ELLs. Um, the, the, plan, the theory of planned behavior kind of looks like an intentions and its impact on behaviors and all the things that determine the intentions um, so the theory allows us to explore like, the determinants or the motivational factors of teaching contentions, which ultimately inform our teaching behaviors. Uh, so the theory also allows you to investigate your participants' attitudes, for mine specifically about their attitudes about teaching ELLs. Uh, we're also looking at their perceptions about societal and institutional support and expectations. And so generally when we talk about, um, in my study, the societal and institutional support, that would be the administrative support, maybe your department chairs, if you have them, your principals. Also, what does the community expect from you? That community consists of other teachers within the school as well as uh, parents. Also, do they support, you know, that support, uh, ELL support. That also looks at professional development support of your teachers as well. Mm-hmm. And then also their beliefs about effectively teaching ELL. Do they even have you know, the self-confidence to say, yes, I can teach these students as well as I can teach, you know, um, non-ELLs in my class. And what the main thing is, like, to look at their goals. Um, what are the goals in terms of teaching ELLs? Um, and so, therefore, the theory of plant behavior, it seemed to be a good fit for my study. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, people use it in quantitative um, research, but I was able to apply it in this qualitative way as well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you did in the methods section um what what were your methods why did you select them so interviews and observations so i conducted pre and post observational interviews i also did uh field notes of uh, the teachers so i have four teachers that i looked at it was um a primary teacher who taught k through two an intermediate teacher three through five a middle school teacher as well as a high school teacher um and so the first aspect of the study was to interview them, right? So we had interview questions based upon, uh, well, grounded in attendance of the theory plan behavior. So what would that, what, you know, do they, do they feel that they could um, teach ELLs? What do they perceive as the, the support, um, the administrative support, the school support from the teachers? Um, also, what kind of motivated them? What informed their behaviors? Uh, what attitudes they have in terms of teaching ELLs. Mm-hmm. Do they think it was a good or bad thing, you know? Um, so 
uh, then I observe each of the teachers over the course of um, several weeks um, during different class. Well, not different, the same class setting, but um, different days. So I went to the elementary setting, the middle school setting, as well as the uh, high school setting. And so the purpose of the observations were to kind of notate their teaching practices and to confirm their statements made during the initial interviews. And, you know, when we did the follow-up interviews, to kind of use it as confirmatory interviews and for them to elaborate on some of the teaching practices and uh, some of the responses of the initial questions. So I did pre-interviews. Um, observations, post interviews as well. Okay. So w- what was your idea of going to a primary, intermediate, middle, and then high school rather than just looking at primary schools? Was there a reasoning why you went through the whole school? And then also, can you talk a little bit about the, the note-taking that you, you had some sort of specific ELL uh, confirmation kind of field note um I don't want to call it a worksheet, but like a checklist almost. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, I want to get a range of um, teachers at the different levels. I mean, I know oftentimes people do, you know, just elementary PE teachers, high school PE teachers, but I want to examine the experience of the PE teachers in elementary and secondary settings. You know, um, oftentimes or most times, physical educators are certified to teach from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. So I thought it would be beneficial to explore the gamut of these experiences to see if teachers are exhibiting these practices on the um, high school level as well as the elementary and the middle level. Um, so, um, of course, there were differences um, through, you know, through the, in, in the different settings, but I use the observational tool. So I came up with this observation tool called the ELL Teacher Practice Observation Guide. And so simply what it did was it allowed me to confirm if teachers uh, exhibited some best practices that will confirm best practices when uh, teach ELL. So it was, I had observed practices in one column and then did, was it evident? And then I also had like the description so I can make notations as well. So some of those were, um, did I allow, did the teachers allow the English language learners to utilize their first language? So if they were Spanish um, speakers, did they allow the, those students to use their uh, first language in the classroom, which is a, um, best practice, right? If you're able to bridge their first language with the, uh, with the English language, then students will be, be, be able to better connect. Um, did, we use, did the teachers use peer grouping with native English speakers? Uh, were there frequent interactions with English language learners? Did, I, did the teachers model instruction uh, through demonstration? So those were some of the kind of the questions. Those are some of the, the check marks on the ELL teacher practice observation guide. And so that kind of that was what led me doing um, observations, okay. along with um, just basic field notes. Okay, and then why why did you uh, want to interview them like first at in the very beginning and then uh, during week? I think you did weeks two and five. Is that correct? Yeah. So I I just the first couple of weeks of the um, project was to just interview the teachers to see you know kind of what motivated them why. You know what motivated them to, um, to teach ELLs, or if they were motivated to teach ELLs, or what were their general goals for ELLs. Um, and so I did it. And so within, so I did it the first couple of weeks to do the interviews, and then we spent uh, three weeks in the classroom with the, each of the teachers, and then we just did a follow-up um, interview of week five. And so I didn't want to get, I didn't want to um, confuse weeks two and weeks five with two and five of the. K-12 academic year. Mm-hmm. Those were just weeks two and five of the study. So okay. it wasn't like the second week of school. Yeah. 
So going into the results section, it seems like one of the barriers that we're experiencing uh, is the lack of communication with ELL students' parents. Um, how do you think we can overcome a barrier like this? So, you know, the young ELL parents, I think that that communication barrier is just ubiquitous, you know, in, you know, that's between teachers and parents, you know. So I believe that the barrier with native speaking, it's a, it's a barrier with native, native speaking students as well. But I believe that um, schools must have a welcoming environment in general. Uh, when schools send out correspondence like letters and uh, permission slips, they must try to be, be ensured to include one in another dominant language or at least provide a URL with a link to like a translated version of that announcement. So it's a digital, right? If we want to go paper, I guess we, right. you know, we find ways to translate that information. Uh, we can also have uh, word walls around the school to help that because, I mean, if the student, if the children's first language is something other than English, then more than likely the parents may have difficulty speaking English as well. Right. So, um, and schools know the individual, you know, individual school districts, they know the population of their ELLs, right? So Spanish may not be the dominant language, right? Oftentimes, you know, in ELL work, well, you know, we usually hear about Spanish, 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 but, um, parents, um, we, we know the, we know the makeup of our students. Where I graduated from, um, from grad school, we were 50 miles north and 50 miles south of two different, um, huge um, car plants, Korean car plants. So yeah, with that came um, several students, you know, several families from Korea. So we know that then, we know that we need to make sure we equip our classroom with a Korean-speaking um, English language learner, you know, English language learner teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to make those, try to make those accommodations, be welcoming as we would with um, all parents. Um, and I guess the onus is also on, our, you know, the teachers, you know, if we could learn, you know, certain keywords, at least hello, goodbye, um, different, you know, colors in that dominant language, right? So just making some accommodations, I think, you know, will be more welcoming for parents. Yeah. And I think oftentimes we, we do, um, you know, kind of lump ELLs together. And if you're in a certain area, you kind of have this assumption like being in Southern California, a lot of the ELL student population, you know, their first language or their native language was Spanish. So I had enough Spanish language to be able to kind of communicate with certain students in, in our after school programs. And I just I remember this one student I gave, you know, directions in English and then some in Spanish. And this one kid just like was to me, and I think this goes back to Brian Culp's uh, podcast as well, it, it felt like this kid was defiant to me. And I was like, what is going on? Why aren't you listening to me? And, you know, I came over and I like talked to him. and I'm like, why aren't you doing what the other students are doing? And then somebody walked up and he's like, oh, uh, he doesn't speak English. And so I started automatically speaking Spanish to him. And they're like, no, he speaks Arabic. And I'm like, oh man, like now I have to like figure this out. I felt like a novice right. teacher again, but you know, through, and I think we'll get to this is through Google translate and, you know, looking at a map and trying to figure out where he moved from just to kind of connect with that student was, was really, really important. 
So. Right, and you know, for you know, for me, anytime I'm just out, you know, you may hear you, you kind of go to you just revert to that second language that you don't know as well. You know, kind of like you automatically went to Spanish, right? right. So again, like under, again, just like you would you would with any student, try to find out who that person is and try to make try to accommodate. And just I think like the main thing is like just considering who that person is, right? Just considering what's important to those people, um, those students, and um, and try to make those adjustments. Right. And you know, again, once we build those relationships, um, and we try to make some com- accommodations, the parents will feel those. You know, they'll feel that they'll be uh, are accommodated, and then that may they be more possibly um, be more inclined to visit the school, and you know become volunteers. I mean, you think about yeah. physical education particularly, you have your May days and your uh, your field days. That's one thing that, you know, those, um, parents can definitely help in. And that's, yeah. that's what we need parents help in the most then. This is ways, you know, we these are ways that we get them involved. Yeah. So one of the methods uh, used to teach ALLs uh, new English vocabulary is a teaching method called a Total Physical Response, so TPR. And it was developed out of San Jose State University with Dr. James Asher. Um, so when we use T, uh, TPR, teachers say the English vocabulary word using body movements to demonstrate the word. Then the teacher asks the students to repeat the process as a way of students to associate meaning to new words. And so in my, in my brain, I'm going into this uh, like total body movement piece, right? So in your chapter... You uh, highlight how demonstrating skills and tasks is really important to physical education. But so in addition to teaching ELLs, physical activities, do you think PE teachers could or should play a vital role in growing students' acquisition of new English words um, through what kind of seems like this natural environment for the PE teacher to implement TPR with the English language learners? I think any educator should be dedicated to the development of their students. Mm-hmm. So of course, PE teachers should be uh, instrumental in helping students develop that um, vocabulary. So, I mean, from experience, you know, physical educators, they serve in many roles in the schools. I mean, you know, you have them during physical, you have students during physical education class, but you also serving as, you know, the traffic, traffic patrol in the morning, you know, the bus patrol. Mm-hmm. You're also serving as a cafeteria monitor. In all of these instances, we can be instrumental in helping our students, uh, our students' development, right? Um, so it'll be advantageous of the PG teachers to assist students with acquiring new English words, um, even when we're not in physical education class setting, you know, demonstrate those things. When they get off the bus, whatever the, um, whatever the word is, um, whatever, however you say bus or however you say yellow mm-hmm. in that language, just try to incorporate that. During the money, we, I mean, during the mornings, you know, we have the, um, octo, the octagon stop sign, what other languages can you put, you know, when you say stop? What yeah. other ways can you infuse um, that diversity of language uh, throughout, you know, just the day through yeah. the school? I mean, you know, word walls, not only in the classroom, but throughout the throughout the hallway as well. So I definitely think physical education teachers are, are an integral part in helping students develop. Yeah. So one of your participants, Mr. Lakes, um, you talk about him using Google Translator uh, and then also these uh, individual Spanish phrases like muy bien and things like that, um, which he said that makes the students feel welcomed. Um, your our, uh, chapter also suggests that PEAT programs incorporate uh, ELL training for their pre-service teachers. But what types of professional development, if any, do you think 
should be offered or even required for current PE teachers to ensure that they're really creating this welcoming environment for ELLs while you know, also being careful to avoid any unintentional cultural misappropriation. So like in the paper, there are a few opportunities um, offered for professional development. You talked about Mr. Lakes, and he was the um, the primary teacher of K-12. So he's very, very involved, you know, uh, his demonstrations. Uh, he was very, very engaged with the students. So Mr. Dansby, he was a middle, middle school teacher um, of my study. So he mentioned that his administration just expected him to do well regardless of the student needs, you know. So, however, Ms. Denard, who is the um, elementary school teacher but the intermediate teacher, she received some training. So I think that professional development um, should be centered on effective teaching of the ELLs, and it should be required for all teachers. Some school districts have um, dedicated ELLs and instructors. If that's the case, I think it would um, benefit the teachers if, you know, you know, the, the spring and faculty, well, spring and faculty, you know, meetings that teachers are have some type of um, in service uh, where they 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 host a session. Like, what are some of the best practices? Right. Um, and then, according if you're connected with a local university, um, maybe their ELL professionals or professors could also host in service trainings where teachers are equipped with you know these necessary skills. But you know, and then we talk about the idea of. Um, cultural misappropriation, um, you think about acculturation, which is like trying to make students, um, uh, you know, essentially the, the cultures in which they have, uh, make those make them put that aside so they can, like, fit in with a dominant society. And other issues of bias, I think these are times when these issues must be addressed, you know, mm-hmm. so we can, insert, we can establish a learning environment um, where students feel comfortable um, and comfortable to be themselves while developing, you know, necessary movement skills and, of course, language skills. So it's like we, we, you know, we have to be, like, purposeful and intentional with uh, the courses that, you know, we offer our practicing teachers or the professional development opportunities that we practice our teachers. Uh, we have to be um, purposeful and when we're addressing, you know, specific issues of uh, cultural misappropriation because we think about, like, Things that are important to students who may be from Mexico, we have sombreros. We don't, you know, we think that, hey, we're building connection by doing that. And oftentimes that may be a turnoff or, you know, again, misappropriating uh, people's culture. So we have to gain an understanding of that. And I think, you know, when we have, you know, ELL researchers and diversity initiatives and diversity um, trainers, we can address those things to kind of mit- mitigate and minimize all of the, um, unnecessary noise that we have to deal with on top of just trying to teach students. Right. And I think that that is also up to the teachers a little bit to learn about that culture. If you know that slowly your school is changing from a predominantly, you know, white institution or student body that's white to a minority uh, majority school, you need to go through, do the research about that culture and talk to students and get to know students as people uh, to figure out how to connect with them a lot more. So um, I think ELL uh, instruction is interesting more so when it has so many different cultures. Like for me coming in as an you know, English language learner, as a Finnish student, I have nothing to relate to. Like, uh, it's such an obscure language in the grand scheme of things that, you know, I have a very different experience than a Spanish-speaking student coming into an ELL program versus, you know, like 
a person who speaks Arabic and they can't connect with maybe the other ESL students. And I think that's an interesting dynamic as well um, in schools. But so let's look at kind of if you you talk about your limitations section, which obviously, you know, you're in one school, so you can't really, you know, speak that to every single PE teacher is like this. But if you could repeat this study, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently to kind of um, change, change the, or what's like the next step from here? So I guess off the bat, you know, of course I would increase uh, my sample size. So that would always be good. But uh, I probably would conduct two studies instead, like one examining the, the, the dynamics of the elementary educators and the other one looking at the um, secondary teachers. Right. Because those, you know, those are two totally different settings. Um, you know, where there was more independence in, um, in the secondary setting of the students, whereas uh, in the elementary setting, it was a lot more hands-on, and the demonstrations were vast as compared. You know, so yeah. uh, we have to, you know, just we have to look at the, you know, different angles and you know how we're setting it up. But um, I think, you know, but again, the reason why I did, you know, K through twelve to kind of look at it, explore from a holistic perspective. Um, to, to kind of like make some kind of recommendations for, you know, teacher education programs because we have, again, when we certify students, we're certifying them um, K through 12. Right. So if we kind of get some type of feedback from what our, you know, practitioners are doing, it may somehow inform, you know, P programs. So, yeah. again, increase the sample size and, you know, I, I would look specifically at elementary and specifically at secondary. Right. So when we look back to that first article from 1993 by Barbara Glaskas that urges PE to increase effective teaching strategies for ELLs, now that we're kind of 30 years past that, in your opinion, what's the field of physical education still missing? Meaning, like, where should the ELL PE researchers focus their efforts moving forward? What do we, what do we need to do? I, you know, and again, I don't think this is um, only evident in PE, but like teacher education in general. I think we're missing the market truly addressing the needs of the variety of diverse learners. So we often look at, um, we, as you mentioned too, we often have group solutions where that works for one group of underserved students. Um, and then it all, then therefore it works for them, then it should work for another group of underserved students, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so dealing with this, dealing with the culture and language, language differences, it'll probably lead to a different teaching approach than that of assisting students from lower socioeconomic statuses, right? So, again, we have a baseline of how we should generally teach, you know, all students, regardless of where they come from. But here are the, here is a skill set for the diversity in English language learners. Here's a specific skill set that we should deal with students with um, intellectual, you know, disabilities. So, again, we have different teaching approaches, and I think we need to emphasize it. Um, However, you know, and in in, with that, you know, oftentimes teacher education students usually take only a single course on teaching in diverse settings. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's kind of grouped with um, adapted PE as well, you know, or, you know, dealing with students with intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities. So we kind of group all of, you know, the classes are grouped. But however, um, and, that's, that's a, and that's an imperative. We definitely need to learn about that. But the question is, how can we be intentional in infusing the needs of diverse learners throughout the teacher education curriculum? Because we're limited in the number of courses our students must complete in order to be certified. So it's not like mm-hmm. we can just add on, you know, several classes because we still have to 
we still have the certification. We think about like CAKE certification. Students must at least do these things. And then we also want students to progress towards graduation. So as peak educators, as peak, as peak professionals, uh, um, peak faculty members, one, we have to be equipped with our ability to educate our students about the diversity of learners that they will face. So that means we need to get um, additional professor development. We need to be, get training. You know, as um, students are completing their peak doctorates, yeah. they may it, may it may be in their best benefit to take a class on teaching ELLs, right? So, yeah, and I think, I that think that's, you know, a, when, that's the interesting piece of. You know, we're we're as, you know, teacher educators, you know, in let's say PE teachers in K to twelve, they have some format of professional development. Mm -hmm. And then PEAT teachers, so university professors, our professional development comes from basically for the majority of it is going to conferences and mm -hmm. you know, most of it is research, but the practical, and I think this is also the issue of the brand new graduating PhD student looking for their first job. They have been trained in research really well, but have they been trained in teaching teachers? Not necessarily, depending on where you went. And I think that then that starts that cycle of when do you actually learn? Like, when do you learn how to teach teachers about ELLs? And a lot of that comes from, you know, research and going to conferences. But I think that there should be some more targeted professional development for um, for professors. Right, because you think of like, uh, like attendance ship America, mm -hmm. or, you know, some of the national conventions, again, you know, it, it, you can you can look at it and see that, you know, you have your, your, your K-12, area and then you have your faculty area and the faculty again the faculty is you know we're allowed to doing looking at research looking at the posters and everybody you know showing them the research that they have conducted and not really not so much the emphasis on making sure that you attend these teacher development you know sessions again which will help us become better teachers so i think again we talk about intentionality like intending you know with the purpose of doing something uh, with the with the idea to fulfill a goal, and again, the goal is how do how do we become better faculty members, better instructors, you know, through purposeful um, development and attending these sessions. So, and again, somebody has to conduct the sessions as well. Right. So we have like you have this whole triangle. So yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we're doing with the ARA Special Interest Group Sig ninety three, we're starting webinars that we just had one. Um, earlier this year, earlier in 2019, or late in 2019, we have a couple more set up uh, in 2020. And I think those are also opportunities for people to come in and kind of do that professional development that's, that doesn't cost money, doesn't cost you to go in to travel to, you know, Salt Lake or, you know, whatever conference that you originally go to kind of gives that professional development through webinars uh, throughout the year. So, but Desmond, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think, you know, focusing on ELLs, focusing on us as PE teacher educators, teaching ELLs, um, I think those are really important concepts. And um, we're going to link to the uh, chapter, so where you can find the chapter when the book comes out uh, in uh, 2020, uh, and I'll have the full citation on there. So um, 
anything else you have uh, to add, Desmond, on uh, social media or any ResearchGate pages or anything that that, that you have? Uh, not really. I'm about to start an um, Instagram page. Um, kind of like my my focus area now is looking at um, physical activity of a historically black colleges. So if you follow me at um, HBCU underscore on the move on Instagram, uh, you'll see my first post. Awesome. So we'll uh, we'll okay. link to that as well. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks to Shelby Ison and um, up and coming PhD student from University of Illinois. Uh, and of course, Kevin Richards and Aaron Centeno for their help on the pod- podcast, as always. Um, if you uh, have the ability to, uh, to rate us on Apple Podcasts and uh, recommend this to your colleagues, we'd uh, really appreciate the support. Thank you, Desmond. Thank you.